You are on a starship that can detect vibrations made by the giant burning balls of gas in space or stars. And as you stand on the bridge of the ship, this is what you hear. Light, as important as it is, and, and vision, it's one messenger among many. So having, having the, the opportunity to actually listen in to the universe in a, in a more direct human scale way will give you, or the public or us as astronomers as well, will give us a different perspective, a more human connection to these incredible distances, to these incredible scales and time scales and energies that are almost unimaginable, in fact. Elsewhere in the universe, if you land on a planet that's not Earth, your voice will sound different due to the atmospheric and gravitational conditions. Your voice might go from this... My name's Reese. ...to this. My name's Reese. You see, even though we all love those stunning images of the dark side of the moon or colourful nebulae or rotating galaxies, astronomy and cosmology are not all about what we can see anymore. Now, more and more space explorers are turning off their telescopes and opening their ears, paying attention to the noises made by objects in the universe, or how physical laws can shape sound in ways that, to us Earthlings, seem peculiar. I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. Let's go back to that strange and definitely unearthly sound we heard at the top. That's an old favourite of mine. This is Professor Don Kurtz, who spent decades listening in to the stars. Uh, when I was a young astronomer, I'm not so young now, you can't hear that on the radio, I'm 63. When I was a young astronomer, I was working at a very remote observatory in South Africa. It was here that Don made a startling find. He was looking at peculiar stars. That's what astronomers call them. And this is what they sound like again. Definitely peculiar. But in astronomers' terms, peculiar means although most stars are made of hydrogen and helium, when you look at the light of peculiar stars, the elements that are so obvious are rare Earth elements, such as neodymium and lanthanum. They can be overabundant by as many as a million times in these stars compared to our sun. Don was studying why this class of star is so peculiar. But how on Earth do astronomers like Don do this? If I were floating around in space, I know I wouldn't hear anything. In space, no one can hear you scream, right? It's a vacuum, so it can't carry sound waves. So astronomers like Don can't actually hear the stars, but they can observe the vibrations they make and use a computer to study what that says about them. For fun, they can even treat those vibrations as if they were made by a musical instrument and boost them so that we can all listen in. Now, Adam, imagine that you get on your telephone and you call your mom. Mm-hmm. And you say, hi, mom. And you hear her say to you, hi, kid. Mm -hmm. Now, is that really her voice that comes out of your telephone? Um, I guess. No? Well, it sounds like her, doesn't it? It does sound like her. But the sound from her voice box has not come to you. 
Right. What's happened is that the sounds that she has spoken into her telephone have been electronically analyzed mm -hmm. and turned into microwaves, which are very long wavelength light. And that microwave signal has been transmitted to a tower, which has then retransmitted it to your telephone, carrying the information to recreate her voice. And then we use that to drive a speaker in your phone and out of your phone comes her voice. I do a similar sort of thing with the stars. Sound cannot get out of stars. Now, the stars are very noisy places. They're full of sounds. Many of them have got rather musical sounds in them. But those sounds are trapped. Sound can't travel in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I watch those sounds cause the stars to vibrate. I can see the stars getting brighter and dimmer. I can see them coming towards me and going away from me as they swell and contract using something called the Doppler effect. And from that, I can find the frequencies the amplitudes, how loud the sounds are, and the phases when the sounds start, all the information you need to recreate the sounds. And if I want to, recreate them in a listenable form here on the Earth. But please note that the sounds of the stars are far too deep for us to hear. They're outside of our range of hearing. Right. And so some processing is needed to bring them up to where you can just listen to them for fun. Tell us about that one. That is the pulsating sounds of a red giant star. Red giants are later stages in the lives of stars. Now, we know right now that the sun is growing larger and will eventually grow to be a red giant. That's the future of our own sun and our solar system. Yet it's a mystery at the moment. We calculate that the sun three billion years ago was about 15% fainter than it is now. If the sun were to become 15% fainter now, we would live on snowball earth. It would be ice right down to the equator. And yet three billion years ago, there's strong evidence in the geological record from fossils that we had oceans with tropical temperatures. How is it that the early earth was so warm when we had such a faint sun? Uh, we think we know the answer to that. Partial answer is at least there was a lot more carbon dioxide, methane in the atmosphere. They're greenhouse gases and they trapped heat from that faint sun. But we would also like to know what the future of the sun is and ultimately the future of the Earth billions of years in the future. So to do that, we want to understand the red giant stars. And that star you were just listening to, Xihydri, pulsates with many frequencies with periods of a couple of hours. And those have been boosted into the audible to give you that thump-a-da-dump-a-da-thump-a-da-thump-a-da-thump-a-da-thump-a-da sound uh, of a pulsating red giant. As Don implies, there's music in them their stars. And it's music that's not lost on musicians. A couple of years ago in France, musician Eddie Ledois collaborated with theoretical physicist Jean-Philippe Uzin on a rather unique project. They played about with images of the universe and produced sounds for various cosmological objects. The project is called Vostok, after Vostok 1, the capsule in which cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space in April 1961. Sonic space adventurers who were signed up to take part in Vostok sit in a special booth and listen to Ledois' 20-minute composition, which supposedly whizzes them around the universe. Vostok is a sonic experience. The bass at certain points is so deep that you can feel it vibrating your bones. Roberto Trotter is the man trying to bring Vostok, the music, and the special cabin, all the light years from France to London. 
That's because cosmologist Roberto is this year producing a series of public lectures in the astrophysics department at Imperial College London about how all five of our senses can help us to experience the universe. To coincide with a lecture about sound later in the year, he's searching for funds to ship Vostok over. I went to meet Roberto to hear more about the plans and his own research. So we very much hope to be able to find funding to bring this installation to London, to put it on display here at Imperial College, but also at the Science Museum and other places in London to give as many people as possible the opportunity to experience this firsthand. What this does is precisely taking these cosmological and astronomical scales and bringing them down and closing them in a, in a sound box and giving you a, a full immersion, a, a, a first-hand experience of what it is like to be part of an audible cosmos, as it were. Roberto is not just an art curator. He's also a working cosmologist, sitting in an office in the Blackett Laboratory at Imperial. Roberto's office is on the 10th floor, and it has a huge window. With such an expansive view of the sky, Roberto ponders the big questions. He studies the dark side of the universe, specifically the dark matter and dark energy that make up 95% of what's out there. If you cannot hear them directly in space, but you can sort of visualize their acoustic impact, as it were, in many different ways. And that's actually one of the prime tools that we do use in doing what we call precision cosmology, namely trying to determine the quantities that, that characterize a universe. And sound, cosmic sound, is actually one of the prime tools to this, to this end. So how do you go about making those measurements and hearing the sound in space? So space is a very silent place to begin with. Whenever you hear the spaceships uh, swishing by on TV, you're sure that the science consultant didn't do a proper job or else the studio bosses decide that that's what the public wants to hear. So <laughs> they just put it in. So you, you don't have sound in space because there's obviously no atmosphere out there. However, uh, the universe was not always the way it is today. And specifically when we go back in the far past of the universe, at the very beginning of time, right after the Big Bang, the universe was a much hotter, much smaller, much denser place, which was actually filled with a hot plasma made of particles of light and um, hot uh, matter. And so it was a very hot and dense environment in which sound could actually and did actually propagate. So uh, the shock waves of the Big Bang, as it were, reverberated in the early universe. And nowadays we can pick up the echo or the faint echo of this Big Bang without telescopes and satellites and instruments. And that is how we go about uh, listening in to the early universe. So you can still hear the echoes of the Big Bang how many billions of years ago? 13.7 billion years ago. Wow, that's, uh, that's a big echo. Yeah, yeah, and it's quite, it's quite impressive, actually, that thanks to these observations, we can nowadays actually measure the age of the universe with a precision of about 1%. Now, to put this into context, uh, we know that the Earth is about 5 billion years old, give or take, but the age of the Earth is not known with the same accuracy as the age of the universe. So, and it, that's astonishing. I mean, we sit on the Earth. It's all around us. It's, it's here. It's a piece of rock right under our feet. 
and yet we can investigate and learn about the age of the universe with much greater precision and accuracy than we can about the age of the Earth. So it's, it's a great achievement of cosmology. So can you explain a little bit more about how you go about making those measurements? What are the tools mm. that you use? So first of all, um, we have to be able to pick up this very faint, very cold light that com comes to us from the very early beginning of the universe. This is light that has been traveling for 13.7 billion years from an age where the universe was about a thousandth of its, of, of its current size and when it was about um, 3,000 degrees hot. So a very hot universe with no galaxies in it and with sound waves propagating through the universe and bouncing against each other and colliding. Um, and so what we do, we need to have special telescopes that are able to pick up this faint radiation that it's now in the microwave uh, wavelength. That means it's the same kind of radiation that really heats up your food in your microwave oven, only this one comes from the Big Bang. Uh, and so we have special telescopes and satellites made that are not the, your usual telescope. They don't have mirrors. They have horns and antennas. Horns and antennas. Yes, indeed. Yes, those are uh, microwave receivers that are used to uh, pick up the, uh, not, not very much the direct radiation, but what they pick up is the difference in the, in the temperature of that radiation in different parts of the sky. And so this creates a map of the universe that you can see on that shelf over there. Oh, on the inflatable globe there. Exactly, exactly. It looks like a, it looks a little bit like an abstract painting with blue and, and, and red dots on it. Uh, but it's actually, that's a, a, a map of the end of the universe. And when I say the end, the end of the universe. The end of the visible universe, precisely. It's, it's essentially as far away as we can possibly see using this specific type of light. Before then, the universe was opaque, and therefore it was like a, driving in the fog. You can't see very far at all. So that is, in fact, a map of the end of the visible universe. And that map, in fact, those little blue and red spots that you can see on, the, on that map, they represent temperature differences in this radiation. And they also represent the crests and, and the troughs of those primordial sound waves superimposed in a semi-random fashion in a way, you know, if you look at this balloon or this map, you wouldn't be able to tell that there are sound waves in it. You don't see nice spherical shapes. You don't see crests and troughs. But it's rather like, you know, if you take one single pedal and you throw it in a calm pond, you will see the nice wave, uh, circular waves spreading out. But if you throw 10,000, a million pedals, all of them will give you their nice circular waves. But by the time they get superimposed, you, you get this messy, um, uh, wavy structure that doesn't really show a specific sound wave, but that's the same, exactly the same as we see here in the universe. We see the seeds of galaxies, each one of them had its own little spherical wave going out. There were millions and millions of them. They all superimposed and traveled to us through the, um, through the empty universe, essentially, to give us a map that doesn't look like a spherical wave anymore, but if you analyze it statistically, you can still tease out the statistical signature of those sound waves. So you have to do lots of calculations to see these things, slash hear these things? That's right, yeah, exactly. You have to elaborate this map in a statistical numerical wave. And, uh, and if you do, you end up with a very nice wavy-looking uh, graph, which actually is a graphical representation of those sound waves. So it really looks like a wave, and, and it shows really the reflection, in statistical sense, of those acoustic waves in the early universe. So indeed, we do call this graph, um, certain parts of this graph, uh, those are called acoustic peaks, for the very good reason that they represent the sort of the average properties of the sound wave in the early universe. Is it possible to convert 
that very nice wavy graph into some music or would that be missing the point? No, I think that that's that's a very valuable thing to do, and several people have done so. I've certainly uh, heard d different prescriptions of, for how you would convert this. Of course, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between um, those sound waves and actually audible sound. I mean, you have to realize that the size, so the, the, the wavelength of those of those waves, is about a hundred megaparsecs. So now. I need to convert this into more <laughs> daily units. That How many swimming pools, basically? Yeah, swimming pools is going to be hard, but I can tell you this is about uh, 300 million light years in size. Now, a light year is about 900 million billion kilometers. So you do the maths in terms of number of swimming pools. It's a hell of a lot of swimming pools, to be honest. So uh, this is the, the kind of the size of the sound, uh, the, the wavelength of those sound waves. So it's, it's truly cosmological in size. Uh, essentially, those are waves that were propagating at a third of the speed of light in the early universe. So give the light 380,000 years to propagate and then stretch it some more because of the expansion of the universe, and that will give you those sound waves. So those are very big sound waves. But from the graph that we're discussing, you can um, find prescriptions how to convert those into audible sounds. And I've, and I've heard a few of them, um, various people have tried. It's a, it's a very nice thing to do because it really sort of bridges the gap, makes it, brings it back from a cosmological scale to a human scale, which is very nice. So I think it's a very valuable thing to do, in fact. And when we think of astronomy as members of the public, we do think of those stunning images that mm. telescopes like Hubble collect. We don't really think about the sounds so much. Do you think that that should change? Definitely should change because Light, as important as it is, and, and vision, um, it gives a one-dimensional perspective on the universe in many ways. It's one messenger among many. So having, having the, the opportunity to actually um, listen in to the universe in a, in a more direct human scale way will give you, or the public or us as astronomers as well, will give us a different perspective, a more human connection to these incredible distances, to these incredible scales and time scales and energies that are almost unimaginable in fact. So I really, really think that um, bringing it down to a more um, to more experiential level via sound and via the conversion of those images into meaningful sound patterns, that's a very valuable thing to do because it brings us in much more direct connection and it sort of enlarges our horizon because it gives us a, a more immersive experience. Why just limit ourselves to one of our five senses? Uh, we should definitely try and use them as much as we can, all of them. Why limit ourselves indeed? In fact, let's not settle for listening into the universe. Let's get out there ourselves. Now, when we get out into space and eventually travel to other planets, we'll have to think about where we'll live, where we'll spend a penny, whether there's a decent takeaway, lots of mission-critical things. But have you ever thought how you'd sound on another planet? The different degrees of gravity and the compositions of the atmospheres on other worlds is going to be very different to Earth. They'll change your voice entirely. So when you phone home to your mum during your voyage to Venus, she might not even realise it's you. The first thing is that our vocal cords slow down. The atmosphere on Venus is many times thicker than the atmosphere here. So the vocal cords, instead of fluttering lightly in Earth's atmosphere, they have to really ponderously slave away, vibrating up and down, washing up and down in this thick, soupy atmosphere on Venus. And so they're slowed down, and that in turn makes the pitch of the voice drop. So a soprano turns into a bass. 
That's Professor Timothy Layton, who is an acoustician at the University of Southampton. Tim recently made the headlines by creating an algorithm which can predict how your voice would sound on a different planet. He found some surprising results, including... We sound like bass smurfs when we speak on Venus. When the keen ears of Dr Jenny Shipway pricked up at the sound of bass smurfs, she knew she wanted to hear more from Professor Layton. You see, Jenny is the manager of the planetarium at the Intech Science Centre, just outside Winchester. She runs a show called Flight Through the Universe, in which would-be space explorers sit down in the comfy seats, look up at the inside of the planetarium's giant dome, and then the stars appear. Jenny narrates the live show, whizzing her charges through the sights of space. What a great way to make the invisible atmosphere kind of audible. You can hear that the atmosphere is different, and normally that would just be completely invisible to the audience. So to bring the atmospheres of the various planets and moons to life, Jenny has incorporated Tim's research into her show. I went along to Intech and the Planetarium for one of the first showings to hear how it all comes together. First, Jenny's colleague James finds a volunteer. Hello there. Uh, we're doing a show called Flight Through Universe that you're waiting to go and see. Um, and part of the show is we're going to um, uh, record somebody's voice and let them sound, uh, let them know what it sounds like when you're on Venus and some of the other moons in the solar system. Would you, would you like to do the voice? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. What's your name, by the way? Uh, Reese. 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 Well, thank you very much, Reese. Okay, that's great. Reese, how do you, <laughs> how, how do you feel about the idea of your voice being heard on a different planet? Uh, quite cool, because. It's kind of so different. Then James takes Reese into the planetarium before any other member of the public is allowed in, so he can record his voice. So if you could say, my name is Reese and I am standing on a planet. Okay, okay you ready? And my name's Reese and I'm standing on a planet. You certainly are. That was superb. <laughs> okay, that's that's probably perfect. My name's Reese and I'm standing on a planet. You certainly are. Oh, that's perfect. You happy with that? Yeah. And finally, once the audience is in the planetarium and Jenny is halfway through the show, she brings in the recording to show everyone how Reese could sound on Venus. Day or night, it'd be twice as hot as an oven down there under those clouds. Also, the air is very thick, it's very heavy. Um, when they drop little space probes down with cameras on and things to try to get pictures of Venus, the weight of the air has crushed them within a matter of hours. It's a really dangerous place to go. But imagine if you could go there. Imagine if you could go beneath those clouds and land on the surface. What would it be like? Well, I'm going to take one of our audience members and put him right there. Um, one thing that would be like is trying to breathe the air on Venus would be like trying to breathe hot soup. It would be really difficult. And because the air is so different, the sound would travel differently as well. And I don't know if you've heard, it's been in like the international news, that scientists at Southampton University, and we're lucky enough to have Professor Layton here in the audience today, they've been finding out what people or what anything would sound like on other planets through those different atmospheres. Now, I'm first going to introduce you to my volunteer. 
I'm going to play, he'll introduce himself actually, I'm going to play you what he sounds like here on Earth. My name's Reese and I'm standing on a planet. You certainly are. <laughs> so there's Reese standing here on planet Earth. What if we dropped him on Venus? What would he sound like there, breathing that hot soup of the air? My name's Reese, and I'm standing on a planet. You certainly are. <laughs> so the Venusian air seems to turn us all into base. After the show, I asked Reese what he thought he sounded like. Uh, like a robot or an alien. It's really weird. Well, you are an alien because you're on a different planet. Fair enough. <laughs> so how on Earth, or Venus, did Tim make this calculation? Tim studies all sorts of sounds. He first got into it when he was a young man trying to figure out why brooks babble. Studying the sounds made by bubbles of air in water has even helped scientists to calculate how much carbon dioxide the ocean absorbs from the atmosphere, which is a really useful measure of climate change. But Tim's not content with listening into sounds on Earth. When the European Space Agency probe known as Huygens touched down on Saturn's moon Titan in 2005, Tim wondered why it didn't have a microphone on board. So what I thought was if we had a microphone and everything on this probe, Huygens, had just failed, uh, sadly, and it landed with a splash as opposed to a crunch, and we heard that, we would know that we'd hit the first lake we'd ever discovered anywhere in the universe outside of Earth, the first lake that's open to an atmosphere. So we thought that would be interesting. But then I said to myself, well, hang on, if, if, if this probe splashes into a lake made of liquid ethane and methane, I'm assuming I, I could recognise that. So um, what we did was we um, simulated the sounds using all this knowledge that we'd gained over the years from uh, the work on climate uh, change and, and, and such like and listening to the oceans to generate the sound of this splashdown. It turns out it does sound alien compared to a splash on Earth, but it's recognisable. As it happens, Huygens had landed on solid ground, not a lake. But Tim's curiosity persisted. With his colleague, Andy White, Tim then simulated the sound of a waterfall made of liquid ethane and methane on Titan. We did thunder, the sound of thunder and lightning on various worlds. We did a, a cryovolcano, that's a volcano spewing up ice water on Titan. And we looked at the sound of dust devils on Mars, all these different things. And then, of course, he started to think how a person would sound on Titan. Of course, the human voice is very different to the sound of a dust devil because humans are so good at picking up all the nuances in a person's voice. There was no way we could simulate a human voice from scratch. So what we decided to do with the voice was to set up software that would morph it and change it. Tim and his colleagues had to take into account the various cues we use to interpret a person's voice. This included pitch, which is defined by how fast your vocal cords vibrate when you speak, and the echoes that bounce up and down your windpipe when you talk. You might not think you're paying attention to these, but your brain is subconsciously listening in, and deciding whether the thing making a vocal noise is large or small, for instance. Every time these vocal cords are beating up and down, these echoes are going up and down our windpipe. That we can, that we're barely conscious of the fact that we're that we're appreciating them. Now they whip up and down the the windpipe very very fast on Venus because the sound speed is very high. Now our brain thinks we're speaking on Earth, so it thinks the tube is short. So these echoes come back very soon, and our brains say, "Well, this is a short windpipe, therefore this is coming from a small creature." So we put those two bits of information: small creature, 
bass voice, and so we sound like bass smurfs when we speak on Venus. Bass smurfs, space boys, robots, aliens. We might be stuck on Earth because of gravity and the expense of rockets, but our imaginations know no bounds. Hearing from all these cosmologists and astrophysicists and acousticians and would-be astronauts makes you realise that science is about imagination too. I might be so in love with gorgeous images of space taken by telescopes that I hadn't ever thought about what things would sound like up there. Science is about proposing something, using your best theory, making a prediction, and then going along and testing it. So I did this to place people in that invisible part of science where most scientists exist most of the time, which is between the theory and the test. It's a good job there's enough scientists to keep imagining new ways of seeing the universe, or hearing the universe, and testing how it works. Remember, you can read the transcript and visit links to the research mentioned in this podcast at our website, podacademy.org. And don't forget to tell us what you make of these weird and wacky sounds of space. Tweet us at podacademy.org.